I want to throw something out to you as we kind of, before we get in the message, so kind of pre-message message. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do when you come to church. Now, some of you, church is a calendared event. It's Sunday, so you go to church. Others of you, this is kind of something you're newer into. Here's what I want to ask you to do. When you come into the service, don't wait till the third cup of coffee. Don't wait till the second or third song. From the moment you walk in the door, can I ask you to remind yourself of your testimony? Remind yourself of what God has done for you. Some of you, it's been over your whole life, what God has kept you out of or kept you from or rescued you from. Some of you shouldn't even be breathing right now, and you know that. So when we sing a song about how powerful God is and how he's called us out of the grave and the life he's given us, and it's in between sips of coffee and and we miss or we lose the power of the testimony of what God has done for us, It's kind of a disservice. I want to challenge us as a church to be ready to worship when we walk in the door. To be ready to worship. Maybe maybe your testimony isn't that that deep, dark secret from years past. Maybe it's what God got you through this week. And you are just grateful to be here. And it may take you a little bit to kind of detox from the week. But can I challenge us as a church to show up ready to worship God as like God's people in his house? Raise your right hand. Some of you are looking at me like I am out of my mind. Raise your right hand. Come on. Raise your right hand. I, state your name. Thank you. Do solemnly swear that I will show up to worship God on a Sunday morning. Put it in your own words. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Let's get into the book of Acts. Acts 17. Bill got us started last week back into the book of Acts uh, with Acts 16. And today, as we look at Acts 17, we're going to be once again talking about the Apostle Paul and a challenge that he had with this next group of people, two groups in particular, that, uh, that he had to try and connect the dots and draw the line from where people were to Christ. Now, one of the things you have to do when you speak, and Paul does a great job of this in, in Acts 17, is you have to know who you're talking to. You have to know your audience. People are scared to death of public speaking. And a lot of it is because if they don't know who's in front of them or they do, they don't always know how to connect the dots. Sometimes it's, it's just trying to get a point across. Sometimes if you're in a class, it's for a grade and you've got to make sure the class understands. Or if you're making a business proposal or a sales pitch, is the person you're pitching to following what you're saying? Sometimes it can be a counseling environment where you're, they're listening to you, but you can see the lights aren't on. It's just not getting all the way to them. It's not connecting. It's a great challenge to know your audience and be able to connect with them. Uh, I've had awesome privileges of speaking in, in other countries from South America and India and, and just uh, different areas around the world. But I'm going to tell you right now, I had to learn how to connect differently moving to Wisconsin. And everyone in this room goes, well, we're the normal ones. It's the rest of the world that's odd. Can I tell you, I had never had, I'd heard of this fabled thing called a cheese curd, but I had never had a cheese curd before moving here. And I talked to people from Wisconsin, they're like, that's not true. No, I promise you, it is. And then I was with my son when we first moved here. He was in middle school. We're walking through the school, and the teacher says, that the lady giving the tour says, the bathrooms are over here. The bubbler is over there. And my first thought was, there's a jacuzzi in the middle school. (laughs) I had no earthly idea what a bubbler was. You need to know your audience. You need to know the culture and the environment. 
and then you need to know how to connect the dots. I moved here from the very Baptist South. And one thing I realized is Green Bay, as a culture, is not a very Baptist area. There's little threads of it here and there, but it's a very different world. Paul understood this. Paul, as we're going to see in Acts 17 in a minute, did a, does a great job of connecting the dots. I want to give you kind of a peek into Paul's mind, though, when it comes to doing this and why it's so important. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Now, in writing this, Paul is, is kind of giving his passion of why he does what he does. Just listen as I read it. It says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So Paul understands when he's sharing a message, he's got to connect with people where they are. I want to speak to us today in the room in two ways. Number one, we need to hear the message and then secondly, we need to share the message. We see it all through the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit would speak to people through the scriptures. And as it became real, as it became a part of them, it burned in them to share the message. Paul challenges people to hear the message and to share the message. <laughs> now, the two groups that he's going to share with, they're, they're all in, in Greece um, one's going to be, and we'll get there in just a second, in, in the city of Thessalonica, and then we'll go on from there. But this first group that he reaches out to is people with religious backgrounds. People with religious backgrounds. So these are people that Paul would have talked to who went to church, who maybe grew up going to Mass. They understood some of the basics. The furniture was in the room. It just wasn't set around Christ. And Paul lays that challenge out for them. Acts 17, beginning at verse 1. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers uh, before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason's welcomed them into his house. They, all, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying, 
that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So Luke is writing this. Luke is our author. He's writing this, and it gives us this picture of what Paul is doing. Paul goes into the church house. He goes into the, the synagogue, the temple, and he begins to speak. And this isn't like a turn or burn message. There isn't anything emotional behind what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, here's the facts. Let's start with what the scriptures say about the Messiah. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah must come and suffer. Isaiah tells us and Psalms tell us that he will be crucified and buried and raised from the dead. He just sticks with the fact there's no judgment, there's no pushing anything, but it does not go over well. Religious attitudes get scared when their areas or their ideas or ideals uh, get attacked or they feel they're being attacked. Notice the Thessalonians uh, don't fight because of truth. They're not pushing back on truth. They're fighting to keep their position. They're fighting to hold on to their title, to hold on to their power. Not only for them, but then within the city. And then when they can't hold on and they realize they're wrong, they flip it to make it no longer about truth. They flip it on the people presenting truth. These people have come and they're wrecking the world. A little bit of an exaggeration. And they're proclaiming another king over Caesar. Now, Jews weren't real fond of Caesar anyway, so don't think these people were like faithful patriots. They weren't fond of Caesar. And honestly, there's a little bit of truth and false in what they're saying. Are they saying the disciples, are they saying Paul and Silas are saying to overthrow Caesar? Not at all. But are they saying, are they saying that there's another king to our heart? That there's another leader we're supposed to follow? Absolutely. And Christ, as in Jesus Christ, Christ means anointed one. So anyone who was a king or very high-ranking officials would have been called an anointed. So Caesar the anointed. They're saying Jesus the anointed. So in some ways, there's a way you could twist this to say, look, they're proclaiming another king. Yes, but it's not a natural king. It's a king in our lives. So there's this first group of very religious people. They hear the message, not so much. Then we come to the second group, and it's the group in Berea. Let's pick up reading verse 10. It says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now Luke's writing again, and we get a, a peek into how Luke thinks. Luke compares Thessalonica, and he compares it to Berea, and he says, you know what? Thessalonica, bunch of thugs. Bereans, Higher noble character. Why? Because when we proposed to them, when we showed them the truth of Scripture, when we laid out the facts, they didn't fight it. They dug in to see if it was true. Well, you're showing me this from Isaiah. You're showing me this from the Psalms. You're showing me this from the prophets. And it's right. 
And it says once they engage their brains, once they look logically that God has given us the roadmap to Jesus and Jesus is the answer to the prophecies of the Old Testament, oh my word, I've got to do something with this. I got a choice to make. I can either say, cool, let's go get a sandwich. Or I can say, this is life-changing. Side note, we hope you're doing this with every message that you hear, whether it's from Spring Lake or a podcast you listen to or a sermon you see on TV or a 37-second soundbite on Facebook that looks really good or a bumper sticker that you're making your motto. Bumper stickers make for some bad theology sometimes. Amen. Be Berean. And being Berean doesn't mean you have to go study more because you don't agree with me. Being Berean means let's dig in to truth together. Let's dig in to truth together. And that's what these people do. Now, as they're beginning to dig in and they're saying, let's continue this conversation. Let's see. Let's learn more about this Jesus. We get some party crashers. Thessalonians, the Thessalonians come 50 miles. Remember, they don't have cars. They're doing this on the back of a donkey or a horse. They come 50 miles to raid the party that's going on in Berea. Pick up verse 13. It says, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. So let's, let's just do a quick compare and contrast. Both of these groups, it starts in the synagogue. It's in, it's in the church house. The conversations start in the same place. The conversations have the same source. Paul goes to Scripture. He goes to the Old Testament. He's walking them through line by line what points to Jesus. Paul sticks with the facts. Once again, not a, not a 37 verses of just as I am until everyone comes to the front. This is just saying, listen, let's use our heads here for a minute. What does the Bible say about Jesus? The big difference is instead of going straight to mad... And defending what I want to believe and my favorite teacher or my favorite politician or my favorite worship song, whatever it is, they say, let's dig in. Let's see what the scriptures have to say. We need to investigate. So that's the first group. We've got a religious group of people. Some listen, some don't. Some are willing to humble themselves and see what the scriptures have to say. And some say, I'm holding on to what I've always known because I've always known it. It's what my grandma and grandpa and the rest of my relatives did. Therefore, that's all I'll hold on to. So we go from this religious environment. It says Paul moves on then to Athens. Now in Athens, we get a very different group of people. And the second group Paul speaks to is people that are just concerned with spirituality. Not necessarily Jesus, maybe not even God as a whole. It's just about being spiritual, something out there, something of a higher power, something that may be disconnected, maybe in everything, but it's a very quote-unquote spiritual environment. Athens in Greece at this time is a center for art and culture and poetry and, and thinking, philosophy, many great philosophers that we still know today were around at this time. Athens was known for being a little eclectic and eccentric. From people I talked to, it's kind of the way Wisconsinites feel about Madison. 
You know, you can be in a conversation, you're, you're thinking, what are you saying? And someone will say, well, I'm from Madison. And you go, oh, okay, now I understand. No offense to anyone from Madison. Come beat me up after the service. But Paul walks into this environment, and there's two groups in particular that are in the debate in this passage we're about to look at. The first one is the Epicureans. Now, Epicureans followed a philosopher by the name of Epicurios, and his thing was eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. It's all about what's going to make me happy. Get what you can, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. It is all about enjoying what life is. There's gods out there somewhere, and they're doing their own thing. They're having their own party. They're not worried about us, so we're not worried about them. Let's enjoy the here and now. That was the debate, the discussion from the Epicureans. Then the other side of that argument that we're going to read in just a minute is the Stoics. And the Stoics saw God in everything. God was ordaining everything. God was moving everything. God was in everything. There was a spark of life in every person, every tree, every plant, every post, every building, because there was a, that spark of life was the God in all of it. And then when we die, we just kind of get sucked back up into that godness of the universe. So the Stoics and the Epicureans would come very clearly from two different perspectives, and into the middle of this and all of these different idols and God worship walks Paul. Verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some, then, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You are super spiritual people. For as I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So northeast of the city, there's this place called the Areopagus. We actually have a picture. That's it today. That's the very place Paul stood. It's still right outside of Athens. You can go stand on it too. They're listening to Paul speak, and they say, you know what, you've got some interesting ideas. This is kind of like the court where we want to hear new things. Paul, come join us at the Oropagus. And the Oropagus had uh, like a panel of people who were considered smart and knew all these ideas. Paul, come talk to us at this place. Come talk to us and tell us what you're talking about. Paul does not show up with an Old Testament, woe unto you message. He does not start by beating them up. He starts by building a bridge. Man, I see you guys are spiritual. <laughs> You're worshiping just about everything. But even in your worship of everything, you've got something that 
you're not even sure what you're worshiping. <laughs> Let me tell you about that. And that's how he begins, by building a bridge. As we saw from his statement in Corinthians, he says, I become all things to all people that I might win some. My goal isn't to beat them up. My goal is to build a bridge that the love of God can walk across and touch and change their lives. Pick up reading verse 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Remember, we've got one group that's all about what they can build and do and another group that worships everything. Paul just addressed both of them in one sentence, verse 25. And he has not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for, reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So Paul gives his speech, and he starts with the bridge. But with that bridge, that bridge leads to truth, and we get to verse 31, where Paul says, listen, we're not talking about a God who's off in the distance partying and doing his own thing. We're not talking about a God who's tied into creation. Our God is the creator of creation. We don't need to worship the, 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 create, the creation. We can go straight to the creator. And he says, not only that, but this God I'm talking about is not far off. He's here for you. He's within reach. But within reach, verse 31, comes repentance. Because he is a holy God. And he is a just God. And he has shown who he is with the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Now there's three responses. Some people hear it and they're like, all right. We're out. I'm going back to eating, drinking, and being married because tomorrow I may die. Paul is saying, you might, you're right. It's time to make sure you're right for that moment when it happens. There's another group that says, you know what? Not quite sure yet. I'd like to hear you more on this. But be cautious how long you push something off. But then there's this group that actually believes. They actually let it take root in their heart. And this is where I would say once again to us this morning, Let's not just hear the message, let's share the message. As we're sharing the message, let's make sure we're still hearing and doing the message. Let's make it a part of our life. Now, as you go, last thing, as you 
get ready to leave. And some of you have someone in mind. All right, I'm going to build a bridge. And I hope you do. I'm going to build a bridge to this person. Remember this. Our responsibility is the faithfulness. God's responsibility is the results. Our responsibility is the faithfulness. God's responsibility is the results. Scripture speaks to so many of the biggest concerns in our culture today. People concerned about the environment. God said we're responsible for it. Followers of Jesus are responsible to take care of this planet. People are so worried about those who get taken advantage of. God says we have a responsibility to the widow and the orphan. The outcast. Those who no one else in, the, uh, in society would accept or tolerate. Guess what? We have to bring the message of God's love to them. The message is there. The bridge can be built to touch people's heart. Let's be faithful of sharing Jesus. A God that many think doesn't care. But scripture says that God so loved each and every one of us that he sent his one and only son. That when we believe in him, this body may check out, but we don't die. The real us is alive. And we live with him forever. Would you bow your heads with me, please? This message isn't just a sales pitch or a strategic plan. It's the heart of God for reaching his creation for reaching people in the life and in the moment they live. In a moment, we're going to take communion, which is the continued message and reminder that God's presence is with us. It's a reminder of what he gave for us to have life. I pray that we all check our hearts and make sure once again that we're right in hearing the message and as we internalize it and recognize the truth of it that we share that message. Jesus, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you, Lord, that in all circumstances and situations, whether in a church building or on a job, in a car, in a home, no matter where we are, we can call on your name. We thank you that your presence is with us. Equip us, Lord, just as you did, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Equip us with that prompting of the Holy Spirit. And Father, help us to remember that no matter how afraid we may be in the moment, the bigger picture you've called us to is faithfulness and then trusting you, leaving the results in your hands. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray.